Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, folks. It's great to see you all this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us at North Sound Church. This is the notorious Sunday after Easter when attendance is supposed to plummet. And you are here, and uh, I am so delighted that you chose to join to worship with us this morning. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. It's uh, great to see each one of you, and uh, we look forward to um, a wonderful time as we move into a new series. Uh, the new series is called Paul's Letter to the American Church, and uh, we're going to spend some time uh, on that this morning. And uh, again, thank you for uh, being here. It would be awfully lonely if I was here by myself to try to do this this morning. So I bet somewhere in your house, somewhere in your house, there is a very special letter. It may be wrapped up with others in a ribbon. It might be in a shoebox, might be a love letter. It uh, might be something that belonged to your parents. And if you don't have a special letter because of your age, when you go through your parents' things one of these days, I think you will find a few letters wrapped up in a little bow, uh, in a ribbon, or in a shoebox somewhere. In the Crane family, we have a very special letter written in 1939. In the British Commonwealth, uh, the war, World War II, began in September of 1939. And um, just before the war began, um, this letter was written. Dear Mr. Pike, receiving this letter will no doubt be a surprise to you as we have never had the privilege of meeting and more so because of the purpose of my writing. I've been desirous of doing so for some time, but realizing the importance of this step and, of course, the existing timidity of approaching a hope-to-be father-in-law concerning such a matter, I've been hesitant in doing so. As you no doubt know, Violet and I have been keeping company for most of this college term. She's become very dear to me. I love her greatly and believe she feels the same toward me. Thus, I humbly ask your permission to become engaged to your daughter, Violet. I feel my unworthiness to become a member of your family circle in that there seems to be such a circle of love and companionship. As you probably know, my finances are rather low after finishing my course at school, so I feel I must work for a few months in addition to the service before we're married. That is, of course, if your decision is favorable. I have a number of openings awaiting my decision, but want the Lord Jesus Christ to lead us by his spirit to the proper place. My prayer is that he may have his precious way in our lives and that we may be used in his service. God bless you and direct your decision. Yours sincerely, Ed Crane. So that was my dad's letter to... His father-in-law, my mom's dad, asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. The art of letter writing is something I think that has been somewhat lost over the years. We now text and we email and not too many of us sit down and actually longhand or otherwise write a letter. However, if you're 
my age, and maybe a little bit younger, letters were a part of our life still. They were a part of our lives. So Barb has uh, at home, and I don't know if they are tied up with a rib. They are tied up with the classic ribbon. Um, and in a shoebox, maybe. No. Okay. <laughs> Barb knows where they are. I don't. So, um, so I, I wrote Barb the first letter uh, between first and second year of college. And I was living with Wes and Carolyn in Upland, California, and working at the Alpha Beta store in Claremont, California, between terms of school. And uh, I wrote her a letter, and, and Barb had been a friend since we were six and seven years old, and so I was just kind of writing to a friend. I'm very confident I didn't say, dearest Barbara, uh, as I opened the letter. And Barb has reminded me on multiple occasions about how I signed off on the letter, which I said, love, joy, and peace. And she was hoping for something a little less platonic than love, joy. <laughs> love, joy, and peace. So, uh, fellas, um, I've suffered for that one over the years, that big mistake. So, thankfully, the Apostle Paul was also a letter writer. He was a prolific letter writer. And in his prolific letter writing, he gave us 13 letters to churches uh, in the New Testament world. And his letters give us such insight into the life of the church. You think through his letters, we see advice, prayer. He answers questions. He corrects them in things that have gone wrong, and he encourages them. Have you ever wondered what Paul might say if he wrote a letter to the American church today? So it was tempting for me to craft Paul's letter to the American church. But guess what I quickly realized? If Pastor Barry crafted Paul's letter to the American church, it would actually be Barry's letter to the American church, not Paul's letter to the American church. And so in our series, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to spend some time unpacking it together because the letter to them is very much what I think Paul would say to us as well. His letter begins this way, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace. So this is our text today, one verse, and we're going to spend some time together looking at this one verse. So the first thing I want us to consider here is the nature of the church. Do you know that human beings really haven't changed much in 2,000 years? The problems that they had and that Paul addresses in his 13 letters are very much the same kind of issues that we deal with today. Christians in Thessalonica were a part of a church that was both an organism, a living body, the body of Christ, and also an organization. And as an organization, it was made up of fallible human beings just like you and me. They didn't get everything right, and we don't get everything right. 500 years ago, Martin Luther described us as human beings in the contents, context of our lives and church using the Latin simul justus et peccator, which 
literally translated as at the same time saint and sinner. Because doesn't that describe largely who we are and the frustrations we have in our lives because we want to be more saint than sinner and yet that sinner peace crops up from time to time. Many of you know I'm a C.S. Lewis fan and I don't know that he intended the phrase to be a description of the church, but to me it just nails what the church is to be when he says, consider me to be a patient in the same hospital who having been admitted a little earlier may be able to offer some advice. Here's a summary of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. It comes actually in chapter four where he said, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought now how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you, would you say this with me? Do so more and more. Do so more and more. And then he goes on to put it this way. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, say it with me if you would, to do so more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. It's a nice way of saying mind your own business, right? and uh, to work with your hands as we instruct you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We're going to come back to these verses in a few weeks, but what I wanted us to see was that when it uses the language of more and more, it's largely giving a description of one of the main purposes of the church. And one of the main purposes of the church is that we will grow more and more like Christ. The picture that we have in Scripture is that he is the, the journeyman, he is the master, we are the apprentices. And just as apprentices start out not knowing a lot and not having a lot of skills, as they begin to grow in the knowledge and the understanding of their trade, they become more and more like the master. And part of what we are all about as a church is being on this more and more journey. Friends, the longer we are followers of Jesus Christ, the more we should look like him. So another question that comes up then when we're applying Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is, isn't the church different today? Isn't the church different today? And the answer is the American church is different than the first church, yes and no. So <clears throat> I was a history major in college and um, love, love history and uh, have been fascinated with the history of the church. I love reading history books. I pre-ordered um, a book um, coming out um, actually I think this week um, that is the story of a mutiny on a Royal Navy ship off the coast of Chile and uh, the story of what happened to the crew left on this island called Wager Island and then back in the UK when they eventually got there, the court-martial took place regarding, regarding this particular incident. I love those kind of stories and I love the history of the church and it's a very interesting history because for the first 300 years of the church, there were pretty much no buildings. They met in homes. They, um, 
They were really focused on discipleship. In fact, instead of greeters like Terry and Joyce were greeting you this morning, the greeters in the church, the early church, um, were actually bouncers to keep people out who hadn't fully decided to commit their lives to Jesus. If you weren't committed to growing more and more, then you weren't allowed to be a part of the congregation. So the church grew like crazy. Why did it grow? Well, largely it grew because people, because they were committed to more and more, they were committed to looking more and more like Jesus. People wanted to be like them. So the church grows to about 300 A.D., some think maybe half the Roman Empire. And then something really interesting happens. The Roman Empire takes on the church as part of its identity. And then what we find for the next, I don't know, thousand years or so is we have this identification of the church with the power of Rome. And in our history books, what we find is that when tribes were conquered by the Holy Roman Empire, they became Christians. And when larger groups of people, there weren't many nation states at the time, but larger identities, language groups, if they were conquered, they either voluntarily or involuntarily became a part of the church. So that by the medieval period, Europe was pretty much Christian, but it was really complicated. It was complicated because it depended on where you lived, your relationship with the church. My grandfather, who was referenced in my dad's letter, was born in Surrey, just outside of London, and his parents were not particularly spiritual or religious, but they were British, and being British, they took him to the local church to be baptized as an infant, because that's what you do. Some of you have Scandinavian roots, and likely you or your forebearers were baptized in a Lutheran church. And if you were in France or you have French roots, you were likely baptized in a Catholic church. And it wasn't necessarily because you were so committed spiritually, but in fact you were French or Scandinavian or British. So what happened then in the history of the church, this is an upside-down bath, bathtub curve. So bathtub curve, um, Casey, is a scientific term, right? So as a scientific term, um, it, it's often referred to in electronics. So if you buy a cell phone, uh, in the first uh, little while you have the cell phone, if it's going to fail, it usually fails right away. There's something wrong with it, right? And if it works, then you go a long time with it working, hopefully, and then towards the end of its life, um, the curve goes up again, and you have lots of trouble, and that's when you end up buying a, a new phone, uh, typically. So this is an upside-down bathroom uh, bathtub curve because um, we have the growth of the church, and then we have this complicated relationship with power, with nation-states, and, um, and, and we call it Christendom because Christendom was essentially European and American civilization where the church and the political entities were together like this. And even in the United States where there was no, um, uh, there was no uh, national church, there was separation of church and state, people still were very Christian up until the 1950s when 60% of Americans attended church. But something happened around 1960, part of it, the sexual revolution, uh, part of it, other kinds of things that were going on politically in the country, but there began a decline in the church. And so my point in all this is to say that 
in America today, the church has been increasingly moving towards the kind of place it was when it started, the kind of an environment when it started. And while we've never had freedom, I believe, as Americans and as Christians, we also find ourselves being targeted. We find ourselves in a position where uh, the values that have consistently throughout Christendom guided European civilization are no longer valid or valued by all of our society. And so we find ourselves under attack in some ways by the very culture that has increasingly become secular. We live now in a secular age. So all of that means that we are now in a state that has moved increasingly like the New Testament church and in which the New Testament is increasingly relevant because we are no longer enjoying the status that perhaps we once knew. But in a very real way, this, provi this provides for us a profound opportunity because instead of coasting along in Christendom, in our very lifetimes, this change is happening and it gives us tremendous opportunities as followers of Jesus. We see here that Paul, it is written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Our letters typically just begin with dear Fred, or whatever the name may be, but in fact, in the first century style, ancient style, the one that was sending it more like a memo from and to uh, is what, what took place here. And our letter begins with the names of those, uh, as I said, who are sending it, and this is the standard form. What's interesting is the name Sylvanus. Sylvanus. So, Casey, if you were at staff meeting on Tuesday, maybe you would have got this one right. But I asked the staff, anybody know who Sylvanus is? And nobody did. Um, Sherry, I'm not sure I told the staff this, but... Um, when I read it, I, I couldn't remember who he was either. <laughs> so, Sylvanus is actually Silas. So, some of you remember Paul and Silas and some of those stories. Um, Silas is referenced several places in Scripture, and one of the places in Acts chapter 15, where when the Jerusalem council, very important council, decided that you didn't need to become a Jew before becoming a Christian, um, Silas was one of those that was commissioned to take that out to the Gentile churches to say, you know, please do these things to honor our Jewish brethren, but you don't need to you don't need to become, you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to follow ceremonial law, be kosher and all of that stuff. So Paul saw who Silas was and he felt like this guy would be a good one to recruit to help me on my missionary journey. And so on his second missionary journey where he went to Antioch and then went up to Greece, to Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is, um, um, he went with him, and so Silas was involved in the establishing of the church in Thessalonica. But the thing that's interesting to me is none of us could remember who Sylvanus was. Sylvanus, by the way, is the Roman name, the Latin name, uh, his Latin name, and Silas is the Aramaic name for, for uh, Silas. So Silas really, even when we know him as Silas and not Sylvanus, isn't a name that we, we really recognize that well. Silas um, kind of comes and goes a little bit. We know Paul well. We know Timothy well. 
We know Peter well, we know John well, but we don't know Silas very well. And he reminds me, he reminds me that there were some very important people in the New Testament that we really don't know much about. Getting ready for the talk today, I was reflecting on the work of ministry that takes place that no one knows about. There are those within our congregation that some go to the Nourishing Network, like our youth are going to be going uh, to provide food for children in the school district for weekends. Others deliver that food that is uh, prepared. Some get in early on Sunday morning to make coffee for us and to make sure that Club Grub is ready. Some teach our children, and there are so many more within the family here that are engaged. But most of us don't know what they're doing. One of the special passages in Scripture for me is found in Matthew 25, and it's a, it's a passage that describes um, a master that goes away and leaves his servants in charge, and he gives one servant ten talents. Talent is an interesting metaphor because it was the name of a coin of a particular amount of money, but also applies to talents, right? Our talents, as we would use the word. So five talents, two talents, one talent, and you know the story. Uh, The master's gone. The guy with five makes five more. The guy with two makes two more. The guy with one buries it, uh, buries his talent, and doesn't get any. guy that gets that that make that has two talents and makes two more receives <clears throat> exactly the same reward in our passage i does that has five talents both of them hear these words well done good and faithful servant you've been faithful over a little i will set you over much enter into the joy of the lord friends we tend to think of the billy grahams of this world the rick warrens We tend to think um, that they are the ones that will be richly uh, honored in heaven, and yet I have a feeling that, that, well, no doubt they will, that there are so many people, like the guys with the two talents in the story, so many people who will surprise us in heaven when these humble servants who work behind the scenes for others will be recognized. I feel like sometimes the church has gotten it wrong, and if Paul were to address us, he he would address this issue. Some time ago, I read The Millennium Matrix. The, The author, Rex Miller, talked about the history of the church and how The church began in an age of oral communications. Things were just kind of passed on orally. And then it shifted to written communication, um, which we got largely through the Gutenberg Bible, the development of the printing press that began to change Europe in the time of the Reformation, uh, and and certainly uh, following that also the, the Enlightenment. And uh, then the church in the last century developed a broadcast model, and the broadcast model is one where we, through radio and television, there was larger spread of the gospel, and he talks about how the church changed with each of these models, and with the broadcast model, 
We had coincidentally with it um, the development of the megachurch. And he talks about how that has affected our understanding of ministry today. Most of my ministry prior to North Sound Church was in larger churches, uh, two in particular. And I, uh, my point here is not to diss those expressions of church, there are many good things, but to talk about some of the dangers that we face in the time in which we live and some things that Paul might address. Interestingly, we are now moving into the digital age and when COVID happened, North Sound was not really very well digitally connected, but as a result, we have 100 to 150 folks viewing uh, our service every week and welcome those of you that are watching today. And, uh, and, and so digitally has changed things and, and we're, we still await to see how that has changed the nature of the church. But one of the profound things is that it seems about a third of our people are engaging with us online. So back to the broadcast area and the megachurch. So Rex Miller, in the context of writing the book, visited <clears throat> a megachurch in Dallas, in fact, one of the largest churches in America. And he also visited, on the same trip, Parkland Hospital. He said the first visit was to the office of the COO, the chief operating officer of this megachurch. Perhaps the name chief operating officer of a church should tell us something in itself. Miller says there were four observations that guided his experience. He said the first observation came when we walked into the building and saw the cleaning and setup crew. They were all minorities and not members of the church. Many did not speak English. The people doing the work had no ties to the congregation and the staff in charge obviously viewed these tasks in similarly detached and functional terms. Second, about 30 minutes into our interview, the executive assistant interrupted to tell the pastor that it was time for his next appointment, even though they actually continued to meet for another 45 minutes. Third, the COO stated that the church had a staff of more than 500 people, about half of whom were part-time employees. He said that part-time employees work about as much as full-time employees and the church did not have to pay benefits. Fourth, when asked about regrets over growth, he talked about how his workload prevented him from getting to know those who worked directly for him. Miller says the compartmentalized and insulated leadership structure that so many large organizations have evolved keeps leaders out of touch. In its place, we compensate by creating a mirage. In church, that mirage is also being so large that it's difficult to care for people, but we convey uh, that as best we can. Miller's second interview was with Dr. Ron Anderson, the CEO and president of Parkland Hospital in Dallas since 1982. He says this about his time with Dr. Anderson. He says, as I waited for him in his office, I noticed it was simple and worn, not what I expected from the head of an organization with more than 6,000 employees. He entered the office wearing his white medical jacket. He still sees patients, and we sat together at a small conference table. He says, three things struck me about that encounter. The first was his demeanor. I felt as though I had him all to myself. There were no interruptions, no watching the clock. In fact, after 90 minutes, I was the one squirming and feeling I had taken too much of Dr. Anderson's time. Second, as he spoke intimately about several of the employees, uh, but one in particular stood out. The woman had come to the hospital three decades earlier. 
She ran the laundry service, a difficult job. He spoke proudly about her leadership skills and the many times she was offered a promotion. She turned everyone down because she saw the laundry room as her call, a place where she felt she could do the most good. Because it is one of the lowest entry positions in the hospital, she found it an ideal place to recruit people who needed a chance in life. The third thing that stood out in our conversation was Parkland Hospital's mission to serve the underserved population of Dallas County. More than that, however, was how integrated and internalized this mission was with Dr. Anderson's own call and compassion. He described his mission in terms of the Good Samaritan and the biblical reference to entertaining angels without knowing it. In a warning, I believe, to all of us, Miller reflected on his experiences and then came to this profound conclusion about the church. He summarizes this way. He said, the church has built a complex and cumbersome spiritual foster care system when the world is looking for adoption. Friends, I think about people like Sylvanus and each one of us who have been adopted into the family of God who have a place. I think of so many serving humbly in ways that most will never know about. I think of those in the Bible that Paul <clears throat> commends for their work and most of us have never heard of them. But Paul has and God has. Epaphras, Demas, Nympha, Archippus, Phoebe, Prisca, Aquila, Eponidas, Andronicus, Junia, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Stachys, Herodian, Trophina, Trophosa, Persis, Rufus, and so many more. I also think of Sue and Jack and Nina and Corky and John and Karen and Kathy and Kevin and Kelly and Leanne and Lance and Barb and Nate and Dan and Dennis and Teresa and Dave and Joanne and Danny and Jim and so many more. You get the idea. In our text, it also refers to the church. Church, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The original word church was not a special one. It's simply the Greek word ekklesia, which means an assembly, very common Greek word. But it became especially important as it became attached to the church. It distinguished the gathering of followers of Jesus from the synagogue or the synagogue of the Jews and increasingly became the identity that we have. But notice the identity is not just the ecclesia or the assembly of the Thessalonians, but it is the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes it the church. And notice when it comes to being Trinitarian people that Jesus is here identified with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, we say, theologically co-equal and co-eternal, and a few verses later, the Holy Spirit is there as well. And finally, I close with their last statement in verse 1, which is grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. The content of this greeting is interesting because grace is what was typically said by Gentiles, by non-Jewish people as a greeting, charis. And by Jewish people, the greeting was typically peace or shalom. 
And here we have both of them together. How does that work? Well, J.B. Lightfoot was a 19th century um, Greek scholar who wrote a number of commentaries. And he said regarding the words of this greeting, grace and peace, he says that charis, or grace, is the source of all real blessings, and peace is their end and issue. And now in 21st century talk, rather than 19th century talk, what he said is grace is the great gift of God that leads to our peace. Michael Shannon tells a story of one of Stephen Pastis's comic strips called Pearls Before Swine. Perhaps some of you are familiar with that. <clears throat> there is a, uh, one of those cartoon strips has a, a mouse with a cell phone. If you have a cell phone convenient, you don't need to dig deeply into your purse. But if it's convenient, you just want to grab it and just hold on to it for a second. So he says that <clears throat> the mouse holding his cell phone has a message come up on his cell phone, and the cell phone message says, clear recent calls. And he goes, click, and the recent calls are cleared. And then another message comes up, delete chat history. And he goes, boop, and he deletes his chat history. And then the next one comes up and says, clear browser history. And he goes, boop, and he clears the browser history. And then the next one pops up and says, delete all texts. And he goes, boop, and he deletes all text. And then there's one final message that comes up that says, erase every bad thing you've ever done in your life. <laughs> and the mouse then declares, smartphones just get better and better. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to have an app? that could erase every bad thing we've ever done. But you know, friends, that God's grace is essentially that app. That God's grace comes to us as sinners. And not by anything we've done, not by giving good people, but his death on the cross, his resurrection, he comes to us and says, here's my grace. It's a free gift to you. All you need to do is accept it. And in accepting it, your sins are forgiven. And what is the result of that? The result of that is peace in our lives. God's grace gives us peace. And for that, we can be truly thankful. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for, once again, the blessing of your word and for how much is contained just in one simple greeting. Lord, may we apply it to our lives, I pray. Lord, may we appreciate those whose work amongst us is hardly seen and recognized, but is seen and recognized by you. May we, Lord, recognize that the church is in a place that it hasn't really been for almost 2,000 years and Pray that you would help us to take advantage of the opportunities that this new season brings us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live into the grace and the peace that you've given us, the grace that forgives our sins, that wipes the slate clean, that gives us a new start, that creates a relationship with you, and that the result in our lives is peace. 
for now and for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Amen.